coming up on Tech Nation, in these times of global crisis, limiting personal air travel is one thing, but international cargo and trade, what about that? If you're a nation and you change your trade policy, who do you tell? Today I speak with Keith Rockwell, the Director of the Information and External Relations Division at the World Trade Organization. Then Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft will update us on the loosening of HIPAA rules so that consulting all your physicians can more easily be done from home and that physicians can work with you across states. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2010, I spoke with University of California, Berkeley, psychology professor Dacker Keltner and the Greater Good magazine editor Jason March about their book of essays, The Compassionate Instinct, The Science of Human Goodness. I asked them, is there any question as to what makes up the elements of human goodness? Well, I think that from a scientific and also an ethical perspective, that's one of the hardest questions is how do we define human goodness? How does it apply in different cultures and different contexts? And we take something of an ecumenical approach and we say it involves all kinds of emotions and strategies. Um, But you can think about one set of the elements of goodness being about enhancing the welfare of others and all Ethical, spiritual traditions have been writing about that, and that's the science we focus on, things like compassion and altruism and uh, gratitude and the like. And another very important and underappreciated part of human goodness is how humans have evolved and developed culturally these abilities to reconcile in the midst of conflict, right? How to forgive. Horrendous conflict. Right. uh, Just unimaginable conflict. And that's a very big part of the story. When we talk about the elements of human goodness, we frequently hear compassion, empathy, altruism, but we also hear forgiveness, for example, gratitude, apology. All of these things seem to always include other people. One other Mm -hmm. person, a set of other people. Is goodness uh, have to do with more than yourself? I mean, is that part of the basic definition? Uh, Well, that's certainly, I think, the working definition that you know we've been operating by in the work that we've been doing with Greater Good Magazine and the Greater Good Science Center, it truly is about the greater good, not just uh, satisfying your own personal desire or promoting your own personal happiness, but really achieving a, a deeper level of meaning and purpose and, and even happiness in your own life through the relationships that you cultivate with others and by promoting the welfare of others. Uh, so certainly, I think, by our definition and, and uh, by the logic of this book and and of our magazine and our center, truly promoting goodness and and living a good life is really about cultivating strong, meaningful, compassionate relationships with others. Now, where does the science come in? Well, I mean, these are, uh, the question of human goodness is a a deep scientific question, right? Where is it uh, located in the brain and in our genes, perhaps, and in our nervous systems? And so what has happened in what really inspired our center and then the science that I do at Berkeley is there's really this new movement in evolution and neuroscience to begin to understand why we act altruistically. And that's in part because there are parts of the brain and parts of the nervous system that help you act pro-socially, right? Is that encoded in 
a particular set of genes that create those physiological systems. And we've discovered a little oxytocin gene, oxytocin receptor gene that maps to really empathetic behavior. And oxytocin is a hormone, right? It is. It's a, a peptide that floats through your, um, your brain and your bloodstream that helps promote caring and trusting behavior. And there are genes that regulate those systems. And we're starting to map, inspired by this movement, some of those, those genetic markers. Psychology professor Dacher Keltner and editor-in-chief Jason Marsh continue their work at the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley, which publishes the Greater Good magazine. While researching this segment, I noticed an item authored by contributor Brooke Anderson. It's entitled, Daily Quarantine Questions, So Relevant Now, with Many of Us Sheltering in Place. There are just six questions. What am I grateful for today? Who am I checking in on or connecting with today? What expectations of normal am I letting go of today? How am I getting outside today? How am I moving my body today? What beauty am I either creating, cultivating, or inviting in today? Greater Good Magazine can be found by Googling Greater Good Magazine, not just Greater Good, but Greater Good Magazine, or through greatergood.berkeley.edu. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, with global transportation for individual passengers slowing to a trickle, what about international cargo and trade? And how does trade between countries work or not work? I was able to speak with Keith Rockwell, the director of the Information and External Relations Division at the World Trade Organization, on a recent trip to Geneva, Switzerland. Then Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft updates us on technology and addressing today's shelter-in-place medical needs. And now, Keith Rockwell. Well, Keith, welcome back to Tech Nation. Moira, it's great to be back. Thanks very much for having me. Now, we've gone over this in detail before, but remind everybody how the WTO works, the World Trade Organization works, because sometimes they think it's a there's some grand potentate here that is dictating trade policy, but that's not the case. No, no, it, it's governments. It's a hundred. It's an intergovernmental organization, 164 governments from all over the world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The continent with the most members is Africa. Uh, the U.S. is obviously a very important member. We have 650 people who work here full-time, which is not that many. Our, our budget is 197 million Swiss francs, which is about the same in dollars. It's been the same for 10 years. So it's not, it's not big. Uh, it's a forum that we have. I mean, where we are sitting right now, looking at a meeting room, you can see they have the country flags of all the countries. You hold up your things. Ah, okay. 
That would be Albania and that would be um, Chad and that would be Sierra Leone and who or whoever it and might be. And they push the button to speak. Or they no. push the button. And it's in, we have interpretation. And what there, a series of things happen here. The first thing is, is that people talk to each other and they talk about problems they have in trade. Most of the work is about this. And they say, well, I can't export my barley malt to your country. What's the problem? Well, we have restrictions on this because of some plight that might have come along. Or we might say the problem, what kind of problems do you have with these toys? Well, they're made with a certain paint that might not. And that way they exchange information and then they can make adjustments that are required to say, okay, let's change the way we make this product to get into that market. Then we negotiate rules for trade. Uh, we also uh, resolve disputes. When countries have a dispute, they bring it here and it's resolved in a, in a fairly predictable and stable way, although we're facing some challenges on that front right now. And then we also monitor the trade policies of all of our members. A lot of it's about transparency. What does this country do? What does, um, for example, Egypt do in their trade policy? Well, they have certain restrictions. They have certain areas where they are competitive, certain ways in which you can operate in that market and other ways in which you can't. And this kind of monitoring gives people a very clear picture as to what it's like to do business in these countries. And then the last thing we do is, is reach out to people. We provide a lot of information uh, orally as in this fashion, but also through our website and through our publications, uh, which is all about uh, the world of trade. So when President Trump says, I'm going to throw a big tariff on you or another country says, no, that's, we're trying to protect our market here. If you're going to try to compete and ship your product in cheaper, there's a tariff on yours. Those are all known to the WTO. Oh, yes. You, you have to notify. And in fact, in recent years, there have been quite a lot of disputes involving trade actions that have been taken. And these disputes have magnified. And the amount of trade affected by trade restrictions has risen to about 8% of global trade. And we've seen the last two years, the highest number of trade restrictions and the most trade affected. It was over 400 billion last year and close to 400 billion this year. So uh, it's caused quite a lot of disruption. And what's particularly daunting is that it has raised in the minds of people who trade, entrepreneurs, a great deal of uncertainty uh -huh. about the prospects of doing business in any of these markets, which means they don't know whether they should increase production, whether they should hire more workers, because they just don't know what the trading environment's going to be. And the whole point of the WTO is to provide a degree of clarity on that, but we're facing a challenge there because there's been quite a turbulent period of time with respect to trade policy. Now, you did mention the data, and uh, I was looking at who trades with who, what countries trade with what countries, and it's almost a geopolitical picture of the world. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Russia does not trade with the U.S. or the EU in any significant fashion. Russia trades mainly raw materials. They import manufactured goods and agriculture. They export, obviously, oil and gas but also quite a lot of uh, minerals. They export quite a lot of agricultural products. Uh, and these are more kind of commodity oriented. 
because, and that means that you can sell it on international markets. Those kinds of products don't face much by way of trade restriction unless there is a trade dispute, in which case there might be some kind of trade, trade rupturing. Generally speaking, the tariffs on these kinds of products are, are quite low, uh, although, although in agriculture it's, it's different. You do see quite a lot of barriers to trade in agriculture. And there's a lot of technology. The global value chains are particularly prominent with respect to IT products. And we had an agreement that was reached in Nairobi back in 2015 on 201 information technology products. And the value of these products was about $1.3 trillion, which is about 10% of overall global trade. And this is just for those 201 products that were not covered by an agreement which was reached 20 years earlier, because of course- the They didn't exist. No, that's right. That's absolutely right. And, and as we've begun to look more closely at trade in these products, you discover all kinds of very interesting things, like the iPhone is assembled in China, but if you broke it down by value added, the Chinese value added is only about 5%. Whereas you have the 3M company that makes film for the, for the screen to enhance swipeability, as they, as they call it. And this is, a, is value added that you don't even think about. And then, of course, in Cupertino, the design and the marketing and all this. So that's where the, the majority of the value is. And the profits, of course, are repatriated to California. So the fact that it's manufactured or assembled with, by the way, parts from Germany, Korea, Japan, this means that still in the U.S., that's where the most of that value will go. So it's a, it's a very complicated process to try and determine, well, should you be tabulating trade in a different way? As opposed to saying this iPhone that costs whatever it is, $800 uh, coming from China to the U.S., that's an $800 deficit for the U.S. In fact, it would really only be a, a small portion of that where the value added reverts to China. Now, there are a number of things going on in new technologies that are going to change the game in a lot of ways. I mean, I'm thinking about 3D printing. We've done some shows on that. And it, it's more than just you know printing out a keychain <laughs> or a little bowl you put on your desk. We're talking about large commercial scale 3D printers that can print any number of things. So the issue is now with the 3D printing is that you have the specs, you put it out in the cloud, and wherever you're going to manufacture it, you manufacture it in place. Parts made to spec on the spot, which is something that is very new. And, but it creates a lot of questions. It could mean we don't need to import these parts anymore so we can make it here at home. It could mean reshoring in terms of manufacturing. If you reshoring. have... If that's you have good. the, that's you, good. I think that's the, I think that's the term. It's better than deplaning. I yeah. Think. <laughs> uh, if you have the technology, yeah, you can do this. But it raises all kinds of other questions. We, we're having a lot of discussions here now about electronic commerce, digital trade, is what it's called in most of the world. We call it e-commerce here because, well, because we do. Um, and here is a question: We've had in place for quite a long time a moratorium on the application of duties on e-commerce transmissions. So 
if I'm just sending you some information or maybe, I don't know, a, a paper or something, well, fine. But what if I'm sending you something with source code for, for um, uh, digital printing? Well, am I then going to have to pay duty? Let's say it's a, I don't know, a plastic cup or a, or a, or a microphone. These things, do I have to pay duty on that? Some people would say yes in the in the in the agreement that was reached with the U.S. before the U.S. pulled out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, there were rules that said the content of those e-commerce transmissions, and it could be it could be digital printing, it could be books or movies or whatever, should not be taxed. And other countries are now saying, well, wait a second, we depend on the application of duties for a good chunk of our revenue which is now foregone as a result of this, of this technological advance. So would that email that you receive that has this source code that enables you to print up a, 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 an overhead compartment or a fender or a tire or whatever it is they're making, should that e-commerce transmission be considered a tire or just a, or just a, or just a, a series of bits and bytes that have been sent over the Internet? So that if I had sent you a tire, it would have imposed a duty on it. Well, but, but I'm sending you a description of a tire. But, but exactly. And, and how do you, do you classify this code? Is it a tire? Is it a piece <laughs> of, of information? Is it a service? Is it a good? I mean, it's very, very complicated in terms of the traditional mode of, of classifying international trade. So it's, we did a very interesting report, our World Trade Report of two years ago, looked at artificial intelligence, 3D printing, uh, Bitcoin. What does all of this mean? And it's a little bit too early to tell because a lot of this stuff is, is rather new. But the one thing we can say for sure is it's going to disrupt traditional patterns of trade because technology is a disruptor. Now, what about things like individual privacy and security. Does that fit anywhere in the World Trade Organization? Oh, oh, in a big way. And again, it comes back to our negotiations on e-commerce. There are different ways to look at these negotiations. If what you're talking about is sort of transactional things like um, <clears throat> a, a, a digital contract or a digital signature or digital modes of payment or consumer protection um, so that the products that you're getting are, does that all depend on the platform? Is the platform the complete, uh, uh, does have, have complete responsibility for this? Do governments have responsibility? Um, that's a key question. But those things, I think there's quite a lot of demand to get a degree of certainty. What is it that, will they recognize my e-signature? Yeah. Will, will they accept an electronic payment as, as, as well as cash? Will they accept this contract as they would if it was a paper contract? Um, I think for the most part, there are not too many political concerns because this is transactional. It's done, you know, the, the amount of, of digital trade is, is whatever it is, over 23 trillion, I think, something huge. Um, th that's, that's globally, not just internationally. Uh, but then you have other questions which are much more politically um, sensitive. For example cross-border data flows. For, for companies in Silicon Valley, this is crucially important. 
Uh, but if you go to China, they have a different approach to this. Uh, the Europeans, for example, they have great concerns about privacy and something which we refer to as data localization. So that means the Europeans say if you are a Silicon Valley company and you have Moira's and Moira is living in Belgium, let's say, and you are engaged in, in commercial activity on the Internet, you have data that says what your consumer preferences are, what your birthday is, all kinds of things. Where does that data go? Now, the Europeans believe that data should be stored in Belgium or at least somewhere in the EU. The Americans say, well, if you do this, then we have to put servers in every country where we do business. And because the American tech firms are so big, they operate in virtually every country. That means putting, putting a, a, a server in 164 countries. Well, for them, that's, that's going to be a very costly endeavor. So, but, the, but the concern of those who want data to be localized is that, well, what happens to that data? If it stays here, we have some control over it. And this is about things like privacy, like your health records yeah. um, or, or your, you know, your, your consumer preferences or what movies you like or, you know, any, everything that you can imagine. Do you want that data going into another country where you, you don't know what might happen with it? And because data is, is in some ways the new gold, the new oil, um, this is extremely valuable. Uh, so there, it's not just a question of consumer protection and privacy. It's also a question of who benefits from that data economically. Now, the next question I have is a sticky one because both Ukraine and Russia are members of the WTO. Yes. And as so many of us know, at the time of this interview, about five years ago, Russia took over a portion of Ukraine. It took over the Crimean Peninsula. What does the WTO do in this case? Well, we're not, we're a trade organization. We don't really get involved in geopolitics. Of course, trade is highly political, but there was certainly an element of this in terms of where do products manufactured in Crimea, where do we say they come from? Um, and that's, that classification is obviously highly political. Because if you say it comes... Do you count them twice? Do you count them well, at it's, all? It's a, <laughs> it's a very good question. Um, but there's another very interesting uh, element to the whole Russia-Ukraine story, which is, has broader ramifications, which is not... Uh, which is actually dates back to the founding of the GATT. Now, we have these... All of the provisions and rules, we call them articles... And there's a well-known Article 21, which is a national security exemption, which means you say, I am taking this trade action because I believe my national security is at risk. Now, the thing about this is that the way you look at it, the U.S. believes that this is the decision solely to be taken by whoever it is who invokes this Article 21. Others are more circumspect. Now, from the WTO, from a neutral WTO perspective, what we can say is this. Whatever happens regarding Article 21 is going to be bad for the WTO. Because, because if you say 
we can declare an Article 21 trade action, i.e. block imports of your product on national security grounds whenever we want for whatever product it might be, then you might say, these plastic cups are a danger to my national security because the domestic cup industry is so important, we are banning the import of all plastic cups. Now, if you take the view that you have the absolute right to do this, then case closed. Um, but that, of course, could lead everyone to simply declare Article 21 on anything they wanted, whenever they wanted. And there would be no global trade. <laughs> well, exactly. Well, you can imagine, for example, people could say this about agriculture. U.S. is the largest agricultural exporting country in the world. But what if someone said, you know, actually, making sure our, our domestic farmers, our producers of wheat or corn or rice... Protecting them is so important that we're not going to let in any imports. It's national security. Well, there go those exports from the U.S. Now, there are other ways you can do this. You can raise your tariffs. You can put in place certain trade measures that can be used in a variety of different ways. But the other side of the Article 21 coin is that if someone invokes Article 21 and the case goes against them, then you have this rather uncomfortable situation where three trade geeks in a palace on the shores of Lake Geneva are determining what is the national security interest of a sovereign state. And that's a pretty uncomfortable position to be in, too. So what, which, whether you're talking about a loophole you can drive a truck through or something that really looks as though people who would trade expertise are deciding something that's that's much bigger than trade, it becomes uncomfortable. And, and the reason I give all this background is because for the first time, we had a case that was decided on Article 21, and it involved Russia and Ukraine, because there is not trade between these two countries. The border is in eastern Ukraine is closed. And the Russians said, we've closed the border for national security purposes. Um, and the panel said, indeed, well, there's a war going on yes, there. Yes, going on there. So that qualifies as national security. Uh, and both parties accepted the ruling because the, the, the Ukrainians said, yeah, there's a war. Uh, and so, obviously, goods and services, trucks and trains crossing the border, it's very difficult to do if there's a military conflict underway. So the, the relationship between those two countries is a very complicated one. It has been for centuries. And here in the WTO, that's very much the case as well. We're saying that by agreement here and by resolution uh, ruling, um, that in fact, the border that is currently in place by Russia, that is, there is no trade going beyond that. But other than that, Ukraine all, is still operating the way Ukraine has been operating. All, all the panel said is, with respect to cross-border movement of goods, the Russians had the right to restrict this because there was a war going on, and they could say, it's in our national security interests not to let this truck or train or whatever it was, motorized vehicle, to come across the border because it could be anything. Yeah. And the panel agreed with this. And as I say, the Ukrainians 
what they they've been trying to draw attention to this and say we have a war going on here. So they said they both it was a bizarre instance where both parties were satisfied with the ruling. You've been listening to Keith Rockwell, the director of the Information and External Relations Division at the World Trade Organization. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, iTunes, and in other podcast syndication outlets. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Daniel Kraft updates us on some regulation changes which will help us get medical attention from home. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I'm speaking with Keith Rockwell, the director of the Information and External Relations Division at the World Trade Organization. Now I've got another, now one last question I have for you okay. that uh, I think is really important is that is climate change, climate change and trade. Are there issues related to that today? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, I mean, there's there's obviously an intersection between trade and 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 the environment, trade and climate change, and it, it, you see it in a number of different ways. Um, you see it in terms of attempts to try and reduce tariffs on environmental goods and make it easier to obtain environmental services. So poorer countries that were looking for things that might be able to help them with respect to sewage treatment or water purification, or, or, or uh, air pollution reduction, a variety of different kinds of technologies that would make it cheaper if the product could be sold without the application of duty at the border. That's one area. There are other areas as well. For example, we're seeing a severe impact with respect to global fish stock depletion. One of the reasons for that is that something on the order of $30 billion a year are given by governments to keep their fishing fleets at sea. And this is leading to a severe depletion of of stocks, and that negotiation is underway here. And of course, climate change is affecting the temperature of the water, and it's 
It's causing further depletion and leading fleets to go further and further offshore and into other territorial waters. But maybe the issue now that is attracting the most attention has to do with a border adjustment tax, which is something that's being uh, pondered here in Europe quite a lot. And what that means is, can we slap a, a duty, a tariff, on your product at the border if we think that this product is made using a process that is not environmentally sustainable? And that's quite a complicated thing because the WTO rules give great scope for the uh, protection of your environment, protection of the welfare uh, of, of, of people, of plants, of animals. Um, but things have to be done in a non-discriminatory way. They have to be done in a transparent way. And they have to be done in a way which is, which is not deliberately trade distorting, i.e. disguised protectionism. And on, on the border adjustment tax, what people are wondering is, okay, how do you apply this to make sure that it is applied in a fair way? Are you applying the same restrictions, the same regulations on your domestic industry as you are on those uh, uh, imports? There was a famous case involving the United States and reformulated gasoline uh, imports coming in from, from uh, Brazil and Venezuela. And the U.S. applied restrictions to those, those imports that did not apply to domestically produced reformulated gasoline. And what is reformulated gasoline? It's gasoline that basically is lower and it gives off fewer emissions. Oh, so it's got ethanol, for instance, mixed in. There can be a number. Any take, number taking the lead out. This was, just, this, was, out. this was back in, oh, in the late 90s. So there were these restrictions. And, of course, California is usually the, the leader in this kind of environmental uh, um, uh, uh, technology and, and policymaking. And so that case went against the U.S., not because the Clean Air Act was being gutted. That's, that's absolute. That's been falsely said by a number of, um, number of critics of the WTO. It's just not true. If the U.S. had applied the same standard to the imports from Brazil and Venezuela that they did to their own domestic producers, there would not have been a problem. But you see, that's the whole question is deciding on fairness. And when you start to talk about production methods in other countries, it becomes even more complicated. Because what if you're talking about a product that is made through a dirty production process in a country, which a developing country without access to the same technology, but the, let's say it's bicycles. But that particular bicycle was made in the one factory in the capital of that country that actually was quite clean in its production. Do you have to label where these things come from? Um, how would you ensure that the products that you're importing the rules of origin, i.e. where it says the product is from, is where it's really from. And that becomes very complicated. It's an issue, the, the proponents of this, and, and many of these are, are European leaders, they say this is WTO compatible, and, and perhaps it is. We don't know, and nobody would really know unless it were ever tested in the dispute settlement system. Boy, I, you guys do a lot more around here than just dust off the flags. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say. You got a lot of flags. I'll we haven't even, we haven't even talked about of most of the things on which we spend most of our time, but, <laughs> but you probably know what those are. <laughs> this is true. This is true. And I thought, I, gotta, I, I only get you for a short amount of time, so it's like, okay, what will I ask you about? And, uh, and you certainly cover that. Well, I, I, I'm very happy to try and help whenever I can. And um, 
please come back and see us again. And please come back on Tech Nation. I'd love to. Fantastic. Thanks, Thanks Moira. Keith Rockwell is the director of the Information and External Relations Division at the World Trade Organization and its chief spokesperson. More information is available at WTO.org. That's WTO.org. With so many of us asked to shelter in place, if you need to, how do you go to the doctor? Between strict health record privacy laws, the actual availability of your medical providers, and the need for your medical records, what shall we do today? Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft tells us about new regulations as well as an overview on treatments and potential cures. Well, Daniel, welcome back. How are you? I'm okay. We're you know, practicing our social distancing. We're at least six feet apart. I can barely see you. And You're it, way over there, way over there. Now, I want to say everybody's saying, don't go to the doctor. How can you not go to the doctor? That's where all the doctor's records are. They have to look at you. They have to, you know, we can't do that all remotely, can we? Well, particularly in the setting of the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, we can't be doing health and medicine as usual. The old models, we've talked about this, are, you know, to call up and see your, your personal Dr. Welby and they're responsible for your health. Now we all need to be responsible, not for just our own personal health and our family and communities, but almost on a global level. And we're seeing that emerge. But particular to the question of, do you need to go see your doctor? We're learning now in this situation, you want to avoid the emergency room and the busy clinic and that non-social distancing where people with symptoms are showing up. The whole idea here is to uh, sort of slow the spread of this particular virus. So particularly in this era, we're entering quickly this emergence of, of telehealth and telemedicine, virtualized care, which is not new. I mean, telemedicine, talking to your telephone has been around for a while. The last few years have seen the advent of new apps where you press a button and talk to a doctor or a nurse, sometimes just to order your uh, your uh, rectal dysfunction medication, but sometimes actually do real medical I've care. I've never ordered that. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> but in a serious sense now, we have this really acute need where someone may have symptoms of COVID or anything else, you do not want to be overwhelming an emergency room or, a, or a, even an urgent care. And so we're learning that these platforms which exist can now be utilized. You often don't need to go there right away. I think we there's this idea of asynchronous care. There are several great chatbots out there now that'll help you run through what your symptoms are. Do you have a fever? Do you have a cough? Do you have other conditions? How old are you? That might then guide you. Well, we really think you should get checked out by your physician who then might take the next step to send you to get testing. That might be a drive-through test. But many people have very significant uh, medical records. Mm -hmm. And they have, I mean, all of these records and, you know, the whole idea is that was there at your doctor's office. There's HIPAA. It keeps everything very contained. Uh, Everything's protected. How do you bring that into these conversations? And there are well-meaning regulations from the, the written before the digital age, like the HIPAA Act, which is the acronym for the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, passed by Congress in 1996, arguably before the real emergence of our A digital stone age, electronically, right, which digitally. has been you know used to hopefully keep our data private, and but often very siloed, stuck on electronic medical records, very difficult for each of us to access. Well, just earlier this month, Health and Human Services opened up some of those, not just the HIPAA element, but the ability for each of us as individuals have, to have rights to access our data that might be inside of an Epic or Cerner or Allscripts electronic medical record and to be able to connect the dots to our mobile apps in new ways. So that's one change that moved uh, out just earlier this month, but more acutely in the setting of the 
COVID uh, pandemic just uh, announced uh, literally, you know, yesterday, here we are, it would be uh, March uh, 17th or 18th of, of 2020, um, the U.S. government now relaxed some of these HIPAA requirements, meaning you used to have to have what was called HIPAA-compliant software to do telehealth. Now we can do a Zoom call or a FaceTime chat with your doctor or nurse, and it's not constrained by the HIPAA laws. So we're starting to see this big need to open up people using telemedicine, making it easier to connect on our mobile devices without fancy software and new ways to access our medical records. So it's catalyzing a lot of this quite quickly, and it's kind of what we need now to, to help address the crisis. That's one of those bells that can't be unrung. Once you're talking to your normal doctor, then they say, oh, well, you really should be talking to somebody else. That somebody else has to be able to see that data right now. Well, you know, the early versions of telehealth was, again, you sort of have that FaceTime visit with your clinician. It's not usually your clinician. It's someone who's on a, a mobile platform and doesn't really know you, doesn't even have your medical records. Hopefully this future of connected, integrated virtual and digital health is that when you see me as your doctor virtually, I have your medical record. I know your genomics. I can look at your wearable data, look at your sleep information, maybe look at how often you've been taking your medication. So we have all that situational awareness to help care for you, you know, proactively to prevent disease or to manage a problem or manage a diagnosis. And then uh, to kind of prescribe the right therapy. That might be a drug that's delivered by drone, or it might be a, an app to help you relax in the setting of all the stress and anxiety. Um, and it goes to the next level now. There's already early platforms you can buy where you can have a technology at home, a digital stethoscope or a digital camera to look in your ears and nose and listen to your heart and lungs so that the clinician on the other side can do that part of the physical exam that used to require hands-on care. So you do the physical part yourself, and they're at their end looking at the information and doing the diagnostic. Yeah, I say, Moira, say, ah, let's take a look in your throat. Or... We talked about this asynchronous care. You're going to go kind of go through a chat bot and say, you know, Moira, I've got these, you've got these symptoms. It'll already know your basic data. It'll step you through. Let's take a picture in your right ear, your left ear, your throat, listen to your heart, listen to your lungs, record that digitally, send those files to the cloud. And when you have your actual virtual visit with that physician or other practitioner, they can have all that information ahead of time. You haven't spent 30 minutes of your precious virtual care visit just collecting data. And as we talked about in prior sessions, artificial intelligence or machine learning is hopefully take that data, sift it, and say, well, for someone like you, Moira, living in San Francisco with uh, the flu around you or COVID, and this, this seems most likely to be what's going on with you, and can guide the best workup and potential therapy. Now, what I'm concerned about is right now, all of these people, especially the elderly who are most at risk, are at place at home. They're sheltering in place. Um, and they have doctors. Many of them have multiple doctors. Many of them have multiple medications. Uh, they, they can't go into the doctor. They're not supposed to be going into these doctors. What's going to happen now? This can't be a future app. Right. This has to happen now. So do you think it helps with the relaxing of these HIPAA requirements? Well, absolutely. The fact that you can just talk on your phone or do a, a, a chat or use FaceTime or Zoom with your clinician right now to check in on your diabetes, uh, show your written down numbers. Uh, you know, these privacy laws are important. But, you know, if the patient dies with their privacy intact, who cares, right? We all want to be smart about this. We've talked in the past about being a data donor. Many of us want to share our healthcare data to inform others and the entire healthcare system. So I think in this crisis mode, we're going to be opening up and relaxing some of these. I don't think they'll fully come back to where they were uh, in, let's say, January of, of 2020. And that will hopefully be a, a positive thing for enabling this new era of connected, mobile, digital, connected 
information and data-driven health. Fix me now. We'll worry about the privacy later. That's sort of the area we have to be in. Right. And in, in wartime type settings, things have to be relaxed. But, you know, we don't want to slip off the deep end. There's issues now even happening in China where patients who were positive, they're tracked by their phone and they were locked out of certain situations. Sometimes that can be a good thing because you're really locking down and sometimes draconian measures can be important. And, and as of, you know, this week, the Wuhan, China province, I think today reported the first time with zero new cases. They're only New case may be someone who came in from outside the country. So this is a time for sometimes extreme measures, but we do need to be mindful about the privacy issues as well. It's one thing to say, okay, everything's going to be fine. You can do Zoom meetings. You can do all of this. What about billing and reimbursement? Yeah, well, one thing that changed. So this week, the uh, the COVID-19 Public Health Emergency Declaration was uh, was made by Secretary Azar. That was around the HIPAA privacy elements. But they've also now shifted uh, that HIPAA, that, sorry, the um, that the U.S. government for Medicare is now going to cover these virtual visits. In many cases in the past, they were not paid for. So now that's a huge seed change for a lot of these physicians who are like, who's going to come to my office can now say, well, we can do this virtual visit and you're going to get, as a physician, practice paid for. Because just like everybody else in this time, they need to keep the lights on and their staff uh, going. And, uh, and if all I don't have to leave home, I'm happy to. <laughs> right. So that, that's part of the solution is, again, the incentives and how we pay for things. And that's shifting right now as we speak. Most of the apps that I've looked at in terms of digital health are very clear about where an MD that you happen to be paired with or you choose practices because they are licensed by state. That's a problem. Is is there any way around that? Well, that's a great question because right now, whether it's telehealth or regular health, if I wanted to go and pitch in in Massachusetts, I have to go back there where I used to be licensed as a resident and go get relicensed. That can take months easily, even if everything, paperwork is pristine. And now we're going to see a need to move around medical workers, nurses, doctors, physical therapists, maybe whole spectrum of caregivers are going to need to be flexible and go where the action is. And so there's a bit of a, a momentum now, even some online forums suggesting that we really relax that rule as well. So if you're a physician here in California, you're licensed here, you have reciprocity in almost every other state for physical, you know, in-person care, but also for telehealth, because to practice telemedicine around the country, you literally need to be licensed in every single state. And that's, I think there's like two physicians who've gotten through all those hoops and barriers so far. <laughs> and they're so exhausted, they can't practice medicine. <laughs> and I would suggest deal. for your listeners, again, there's a lot of information online. There's a fair number of, you know, Microsoft has a pretty sophisticated uh, chatbot to help with COVID symptoms. There's a, a platform called COVID2019.health, what will run you through your, your symptomatology using CDC guidelines. There's something called Ask Sydney. There's a whole variety of sort of chatbots out there that will help you do early guidance, and not just for COVID, but for other symptoms. Because the challenge with, with the healthcare system now is, while we have this acute infectious process going on, people are still going to break their arms and potentially have accidents and cardiac issues and diabetes. So there's a challenge of keeping everybody else on track who have these acute and chronic conditions. I want to ask you today, because I'm really worried about this. Everybody has been sent home here in San Francisco. Everybody's supposed to self-isolate. So many of the uh, young families, they've got people of all ages, and they're all together living in their homes or their apartments. Uh, We've got young professionals who are all like two, three, four to an apartment. Um, How do you self-isolate? What happens if one person 
comes up with the coronavirus. Can you self-isolate when you live with multiple people? Yeah, it's difficult if it's your, your housemates or your family or your kids. And so they're, you know, we're still learning, again, in this novel coronavirus, how best to socially isolate and respond. Um, the guidance so far has been if there's a single person in the household that seems to have symptoms uh, or has been tested and certainly is positive, in a lot of folks, most folks who have coronavirus do not need to end up in a clinic or a hospital. That's a relatively small fraction, but given how many folks are expected to get this, there's a concern. So most people, folks are going to need to kind of ride this out at home. So I think the guidance is, you know, ideally have a separate area of the house. It could be put them in the garage if you need to, supply them with... <laughs> Kick uh, them to the curb. Now that's wrong. Uh, supply that them with wrong. food and other elements. You know, a lot of people... But, are, but many people don't have multiple bathrooms. True. Right. And multiple bathrooms. So being very mindful, potentially having some smart protocols about you know, how you clean up after yourself, particularly if you're symptomatic in, in a tight space, uh, you know, not coughing into your hands and touching everything around the house. Some of it's going to be common sense, but difficult to do, just like thinking one all things kitchen. we touch. Yeah. You've got one kitchen. That person shouldn't really be going into the kitchen, opening the refrigerator, doing, I mean, yep. somebody else has to kind of take care of them. Absolutely not. And if someone ideally has a, a lead in the family that can, can do this, I mean, a lot of folks have been stocking up. I, you know, with my family, I made sure we had enough, you know, Tylenol and, and you da- Dayquil you. and NyQuil and, 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 and things like Gatorade <laughs> and crackers, because if everyone gets it, right, hopefully we're all going to be okay, but we're going to not want to eat much and want to have some hydration and some Tylenol and, and other sort of basics. So it's not just about getting toilet paper. It's about thinking about the likelihood is a good percentage of the U.S. population will get this at some point in time. What do you have need to have ready in your home uh, in terms of basic supplies? And then what protocols might you think, again, ahead of time, being proactive? What if, you know, your kid gets it or uh, your grandmother and you're in the same household or your roommate? How might you think about those protocols? Might there be some online guidance? I'm sure that exists to kind of help you think through those steps. Well, we have a big problem because we don't know a lot of things. We can't go out and test who has it, who doesn't directly. That's not easy. So you have three, four people living in an apartment down here uh, in San Francisco who are sent home from their work because their work was all, no, you're working from home. And they're all on their computers and they're working from home. And they have one or two bathrooms and they have one kitchen. One person gets it. You know the rest of the people, their parents are going to say, you should come home. Mm-hmm. That probably is not a good idea. Yeah, coming home may not be the good idea, especially if they're visiting older parents. It might be just the idea, you know, you you have, let's say, four folks living in a San Francisco apartment, working from home. You, you keep your social distance. You have sort of maybe taped out areas like parts of the the kitchen and the bathroom that people are very mindful about in terms of washing and hygiene and wipe downs. And that will help in some situations definitely uh, slow the spread and and prevent some folks from getting it. So I think we need to be, uh, and starting to become available are the ability to get testings, even drive-throughs. Verily, which is a spinoff from Google, now has a web platform. For Verily, it's under under baseline. um, And basically, you can now find and make online appointments to get testing. So once you have that knowledge, you can even better self-sequester and, and keep away from your, your family, your roommates, if you're in a close quarters. Let's go to some hope here. Who's working on what? Give us some examples. Well, the big need here downstream is to have vaccines that, you know, just like we have for the common flu or things that have helped cure polio and smallpox. How do we develop and quickly um, a vaccine that can enable us to quickly and efficiently and safely vaccinate good parts of the planet. So if you look at this 
virus, this coronavirus. It's an RNA virus. And when you look at it, sort of structure, you've seen these beautiful sort of almost beautiful pictures of the virus. Those little spikes coming out are called the spike glycoprotein S. And that is often the target uh, for potential vaccines. And pretty quickly, this in our magical age now, you can sequence these viruses. And those viruses were then, the sequences were shared online. And several biotech groups have now taken those and very quickly turned those into vaccines. I'll give you one example. A company called Inovio, I-N-O-V-I-O, based out of Philadelphia and uh, San Diego, uh, creates DNA medicines. And they, very early on, about a month or so ago, got the sequence from China. And they looked Which at Which you the, can put in an email. You can put in an email. You can you know, <laughs> send it over the fax or by the email. Look at that sequence of C, A, C, Ts, and Gs and understand that, quote-unquote, antigens. What are the molecule, that, that the characteristics of that spike protein that the immune system sees and then, and then turn that sequence into little DNA fragments that can be embedded in a, in a DNA medicine so that if you insert that DNA into the body, it will then encode for RNA and that RNA will make that antigen, that sort of special molecule that the immune system will see as foreign and create that immune response, that vaccination. So what Onovio has done is uh, basically, you know, find that optimal consensus sequence for that selected antigen, put those and insert those into their you know, DNA plasmids, and they have this little um, sort of proprietary little electronic electroporation gun. It's almost like a little, um, looks like a little place like you're getting your needle for a vaccine, which helps with some electricity, push that DNA into the cells of your skin. And then your skin, your, your cells of your own body will start to manufacture that protein, which the body then responds to. So it's not your normal vaccine where you actually take the antigen and inject it into the body. The body is becoming the sort of manufacturing spot for that, um, for that vaccine. So that's already entering clinical trials. Another novel company called Moderna Therapeutics has what's called messenger, messenger RNA therapeutics. They've made the, the messenger RNA that encodes for another antigen. And they're now, I think as of mid-March, done the very first patients this week uh, in the safety trials to see if this vaccine will, number one, make the desired antigen, the desired antibody response, and will be a long-term potential vaccine play for COVID-19. You know, we're all so focused on the ramp up and who didn't do what and, uh, you know, where are we now? At what point can we declare we can get back to normal? Well, I think it's going to be uh, looking at the epidemiology. We've seen, uh, you know, Singapore did a pretty good job of of keeping this at bay. Um, But and that was a real lockdown. And they came down to almost no cases. But now in the last week, they're seeing some cases rise and it's from people coming in from other places. So. One of the concerns and questions is we have waves of this uh, come in and out. So we don't want to go into another lockdown if things pop back up. But that may be the case. We need to be getting to a point where we have vaccines, which still will take a year. You know, you can't take nine women in a month and make one baby. You still need nine months or so to get through this whole process of testing, safety, and manufacturing of vaccines. And we're arguably the U.S. FDA and other bodies are going to help accelerate but can never completely go from vaccine to something in your injectable within a month. We're going to see the need to look at some therapies. There's lots of activity going on, dozens of clinical trials that have opened up in the last month. Some of them are looking at old school uh, drugs, often called drug repurposing, chloroquine, which is a drug that's been around since the 1940s for preventing and treating malaria, seems to have activity in the dish in vitro and now some positive effects in human trials. And that's an old generic drug we might see. Uh, There are other antiviral drugs drugs often developed for things like HIV or other uh, pandemics or infections like Ebola that seem to work on the RNA of 
this particular uh, virus. So we're seeing these quickly move through clinical trials. It's still going to take us months to get to things that are out as a normal therapy. Hopefully, that's going to come quickly, and we'll get back to some normalcy around the planet. One thing I find fascinating about the question is the is is how do you decide it's safe to go out because of how dreadful this this virus is on people of a certain age and people with underlying conditions, some of whom don't even know they have underlying conditions. Mm-hmm. And it's a question of, well, gee, can we get to plane travel again? Gee, can we... How, is this going to change how we design bathrooms, how we design kitchens, uh, what is, how we eat in restaurants, what we, how we live? Well, it's certainly it? affecting it short term. I mean, I think everyone's hope is that we get through this uh, cri- this global crisis and we'll be able to get back to our more normal life. But it hopefully will give us lessons that we can, when the next disease vector comes along, we can really rapidly identify it, uh, really rapidly squash it down, or if we need to, develop those drugs and vaccines in a much more uh, expeditious manner. Taking the lessons that we've learned here, maybe engineering whole platforms. There are you know, groups that started you know, from Skull Global Threats Funds to endpandemics.org and other groups that are, have built software and platforms that are now going to be ramping up to create more of this global infrastructure. A lot of criticism has come to the Trump administration for two years closing their pandemic response office. We need to have these public health officials and processes in place because even one or two days, let alone two or three weeks lag, has huge down implications given the exponential pace of, of, of this sort of disease. So I'm hopeful that we'll get to this new world. I'm hopeful that some of the new vaccines and drugs that are being evolved will get us there quickly. It's, but it's going to take all of us and it's going to take people volunteering for clinical trials. It's going to take the fact that any drug, any vaccine still has risk. There are going to be some patients with side effects. Um, you know, how do you weigh the risk that 0.01% of patients have a bad side effect, uh, even a mortality effect when it might save 98% of the patients who get the vaccine? Well, I hope I can shake your hand someday, but that'll, maybe not. Maybe people don't shake anymore. We'll stick with the namaste for now. <laughs> Very good. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks, Mara. Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft is the founder and chair of Exponential Medicine. More information is available at exponentialmedicine.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.